All right, we're going to be talking about God's decree, uh, chapter 3. You should, everybody should have a handout. Everybody have one yet? Anybody need one? Raise your hand. Matt will get one to you. Up there at the top of your handout, you'll see that we have an outline of the chapter. And I'm going to read through it from beginning to end. But I want you to take note of this outline as I do. We're going to see in paragraphs one and two the nature of God's decree, specifically the universality of his decree, that it has to do with all things. That is in paragraph one. And then there in paragraph two, we're going to see the unconditionality of his decree. That is that God's decree is in and of himself. It's not conditioned by anything that any of his creatures do. Then as we go through, you'll see in paragraphs three, four, five, and six, uh, the, the confession is going to deal with the doctrine of God's decree and predestination. And in those four chapters, we're going to see that it is ultimately for God's glory, according to God's nature. It is in God's son, and it is through God's means. And then finally, in chapter 7, we're going to see the benefit of God's decree. Specifically, when this doctrine is handled carefully, which sadly, it's not often the case, it does at least two things. It assures God's elect, and it promotes godliness. And so with that outline in mind, would you read along with me, beginning in paragraph 1 of chapter 3 of God's decree. God hath decreed in himself... From all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. And although God knoweth whatever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated or ordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. These angels and men thus predestinated and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number and their numbers so certain and definite that it can that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause, moving him thereunto. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto, wherefore they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectively called in a faith in Christ. By his spirit working in due season are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation." Neither are there other redeemed by Christ or effectively called justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. 
The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight by your spirit and according to your word as we consider this brief summary of what your scriptures teach concerning your decree. Would you humble us? Would you make us wise? God, would you help us to love and to trust you more, even and especially in the things that we cannot understand? We are grateful that you know all things, though we don't. You have decreed all things such that your purposes cannot fail. And we rejoice that we have seen this fulfilled first and foremost and uppermost in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would edify us now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to consider first those first two paragraphs, that is the nature of the decree. We're going to consider first its universality, and then we're going to consider its unconditionality, that it is both universal, paragraph one, and it is unconditional. Under that first paragraph, we are going to consider, or as we consider, the universality of the decree, we're going to consider first of all, the decree defined. William Ames defines God's decree this way. The decree of God is his determinate purpose of affecting all things by his almighty power and according to his counsel. And so just like the confession, this quotation by William Ames is namely taken from Ephesians 1 verse 11, which says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And there we see in the paragraph, first of all, the source of God's decree, that God hath decreed in himself. That when we read that first word of the of the chapter, God, we're supposed to remember chapter two. It's picking up where it left off in the previous chapter. The Baptist later came in comparing this to the Westminster Confession and added in himself. And they did it so that they might be able to emphasize the Trinitarian nature of the decree. And that's going to become more clear as we move on. It's also going to anticipate what comes later on in the confession, specifically on the chapter in God's covenant, as well as the chapter on Christ, our mediator. That's chapter 7 and chapter 8. And so one of the ways that we need to read the confession is not just top to bottom, as if each article is independent from the others, but we need to learn to read the confession from left to right, because it is a body of divinity, organically connected to one another. And that's going to become clear in this particular chapter. The further mentions all add, that is the further mentions of God in himself, it all adds to the doctrine contained in chapter 2. That is that everything that we're going to see here in chapter 3 is contained in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is the foundation for chapter 3, and so chapter 3 is essentially building on chapter 2. It's letting us consider God's, quote, most wise and holy counsel of his own will. And so in summary, as I just said, chapter 2 informs chapter 3. But chapter 3 adds and expands upon chapter 2 on the doctrine of God. 
And I want you to notice something. There in those opening lines of paragraph one, the confession asserts that the will of our triune God is not plural, but singular. There is no place for three centers of consciousness or of three wills, the Father having his own will, the Son having his own will, and the Spirit having his own will. That to assert anything like that is outside of the bounds of historic Trinitarianism, and it opens a pathway to tri-theism. Three wills essentially implies three gods. Now, if you want to consider that more deeply, I encourage you to go back to the audio that we sent out this last week on the doctrine of God's simplicity, specifically as it relates to the doctrine of the Trinity. But I want you to consider also that the will of the triune God is also identical in his essence. Take your confession, and I want you to go back to chapter 2. And I want you to notice in the opening words of chapter 2 that it says that God's subsistence is in and of himself. Then at the beginning of the next chapter, in chapter 2, paragraph 2 rather, it says the exact same thing, uses the same phrase. That God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. Then we see at the beginning of chapter 3 that God has decreed all things in himself. That just as we discussed when we were talking about the essence of God, that is that all that is in God is God. God isn't divided into parts like a divine pizza, but rather All of his attributes are in and of themselves the fullness of God and according to God's essence are identical with one another. All that is in God is God. It's identical with his essence. And so God's will is his decree and God's decree is God. That is identical with his essence. It's not contingent on anything other than the God who is self-existent. The God who who has life in and of himself. Why am I belaboring this point? Here's the implication. Only God can know the full godness of God's nature. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Therefore, only God can know the full godness of God's decree. That's why Reformed theologians make distinctions concerning God's will, specifically between God's preceptive will and God's decretive will. His preceptive will, that is P-R-E-C-E-P-T-I-V-E, precept with an I-V-E, and decretive, D-E-C-R-E-T-I-V-E, decree, only minus an E plus a T-I-V-E. And so we distinguish between the two. When we're talking about God's preceptive will, what we're talking about is those things having to do with God's precepts. The Bible tells us that we should, according to Ephesians 6, 6, do the will of God from the heart. It's something that we can do. Hebrews 13 tells us that to do God's will is pleasing in his sight. The Apostle Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And so God's preceptive will is what Augustine referred to as God's revealed will. It's those aspects of God's will that he has made known to us in his word. It's not anything that you and I can know by virtue of what he has created. And so you remember when we go all the way back to chapter one, right? We're reading the confession right to left, not just top to bottom. 
It says in the first paragraph of chapter one that it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in adverse manners to reveal himself and declare that his will unto his church. In other words, all the ways that God revealed himself and what he's created was sufficient to show that there is such a person as God and to condemn all men for rejecting him. But if man is to know who this God is and what they're to do in order to be saved, beginning with repenting and believing in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then they have to look to God's word. Not his works, but his word, that which he has revealed. And so that's what we're referring to when we talk about God's preceptive will. It's what God has revealed in his precepts. That in the Bible, God has told us everything that you and I need to know to do everything that God would have us do for the glory of his name. And that we can know God's will sufficiently, even if we can't know his will fully. And so God is infinite. And because God has decreed in himself, his decree is infinite. You and I can no more circumscribe God's decree with our own human reason than we could ascribe, circumscribe God himself. God's decree is as infinite as God is. And so just as we cannot know God as God knows himself, so that we cannot know God's decree as God knows God's decree. And that leads us to a second way of thinking about God's will. Not only in terms of his preceptive will, but secondly, according to his decretive will. God's decretive will, if you hadn't guessed, has to do with his decree. It's God's plan for his world, whereby he wills everything that should come to pass in history. So Revelation 4, verse 11, reveals that God created all things and that all things were created, quote, for the sake of his will. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 38 says that God gave each living organism its own body according to his will. In other words, because God is self-existent, that's the doctrine of aseity, because God is self-existent, God therefore acts however he wills. He acts as he pleases, and he does everything according to his good pleasure. And the Bible ultimately hums from beginning to end with this central truth that in both creation and redemption, we can find no higher reason why something takes place than this. It is God's will that it should happen. Why is this distinction important? This distinction between God's decretive and preceptive will. It's important because ultimately what it does is it guards the doctrines of God's sovereignty and of man's responsibility. Too often we fall into the trap of wanting to know God's decretive will while ignoring his preceptive will. We want to peek into the godness of, of God's sovereignty while neglecting our own responsibility. And often we make our responsibility to God's preceptive will contingent upon God making known his decretive will. Why should I obey you? Why should I follow you? Why should I believe in you unless you make known to me all of the reasons why you made this thing come to pass in my life, in the lives of those that I know, or in the world? I wonder if you've ever said anything like that. 
or known anybody who's perhaps thought that way. Well, thinking about God's will in this twofold distinction is important because it distinguishes what God knows about his will in himself and what we know that we're responsible to. We are to respond to God's preceptive will in obedience, and we are to respond to his decretive will by faith. In addition to that, we also see in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, both of these. That on the one hand, the crucifixion of our Lord was clearly against God's preceptive will. His own law says, thou shalt not murder or kill. And yet, it was the murder of God's righteous servant. On the other hand, the death of Christ fulfilled God's decretive will, the will of his decree, because all these things took place according to God's plan. And we'll consider these in just a minute. So we've just considered the defining reality, the source of God's will, that it is, it is in and of himself. But secondly, I want to consider the scope of God's will. Notice what the confession says. The scope of God's will is all things... All in English is translated all. Whatsoever comes to pass. That is everything without exception originates in God's will or decree. And here we see that God's eternal decree is ultimately accomplished in the created realm. Everything that happens external to God is a realization of his will that is in himself. There are no contingencies. There are no variables. God rules over everything. And so he freely and unchangeably, the confession says, has decreed all things, everything. So the scope of his will then is everything. But then finally, we see here in the opening chapter, the degree is qualified. And it's going to qualify in two ways. First of all, it's going to qualify itself in order to guard God's holiness. And it's going to qualify itself in order to reject determinism. Notice the first, in order to guard God's holiness, the confession says, God is neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. The moment that you begin talking about God's sovereignty over all things, decreeing all things, the immediate question that should pop into all of our minds, and it pops into the minds of many, is, well, how does that not then make God the author of sin, and of evil, and of wickedness? This is the problem of theodicy. The relationship between God and evil. And theologians have wrestled with this for millennia upon millennia. We're not going to solve this mystery in this time here. And the confession makes no attempt to solve this mystery. It's merely content to exist within the very tensions that the scriptures provide for us. And yet the confession is willing to state essentially what the Bible states. 1 John 1 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so however it is that we're to understand God's relationship to evil, we cannot understand it in any way as affecting God in his nature or character, including his decree. In him is no darkness. So how do we go about thinking about these things? 
Well, while acknowledging that there's a whole lot that is mysterious and known only to God, right? That's his decretive will. Only God knows his will as he knows himself. This position must nevertheless be held in tension. God indeed decrees all things, and yet the instruments of sin are themselves responsible for their own actions. That's what it means when it says that God has no fellowship with any participants in their sin. There's no darkness in him. And that leads us to the second qualification, that it rejects determinism. Not only is God not the author of sin, but also no violence is offered to the will of the creature, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. In other words, if God is not the author of evil, then how is God not ultimately the author of everything in such a way that takes away free will? Calvinists get a really bad name. Many people think that Calvinists reject free will. We're going to see when we get to Article 9 that that's not the case. There's an entire chapter devoted in the confession to free will, and that may come to the surprise of many of you, and I can't wait to get there because it's going to be a whole lot of fun. The Bible teaches us that, that all of God's creatures, that mankind is free in all that they do, and yet they do so according to a fallen and corrupted nature in Adam. And so the confession wants to be really careful that we are not robots, we're not automatons, that God has not so decreed all things that we do everything against our will. And so it doesn't negate the liberty or contingency of second causes, and this is important. This language of first cause, which is God, and of second causes, which is all that he has created, and the contingencies therein. God is the one that sets them in motion. Boy, I wish we could spend the whole time on this, but we're not going to be able to. So what I want to do is just introduce you to an important doctrine that's implicit in this opening paragraph. It's the doctrine of divine concurrence. Concurrence alongside C-O-N-C-U-R-R-E-N-C-E, concurrence. And the doctrine of divine concurrence essentially says this, that when the creature acts, God acts simultaneously. When the creature acts, God acts simultaneously. In other words, God's activity accompanies the creature's activity at every point, and yet without God depriving the creature of his natural freedom. Nothing is done blindly or randomly. God isn't constantly adapting to his creatures. Rather, whatever happens, even if it happens through secondary causes, happens ultimately by the hand of God, who is the first and primary cause of all things. And so I want you to consider it this way. Take your Bibles and open up to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. You can open up right there to the middle of your Bible. You should be able to find it there. Isaiah 10. We're thinking now about this doctrine of concurrence. The northern kingdom is about to be assaulted by Assyria. And look at what the Lord says, chapter 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send him. The him there is referring to Assyria. And against the people of my wrath, I command him 
spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand is reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her other images? In other words, I have conquered other nations way greater than Israel. What's going to stop me from conquering the northern kingdom? Verse 12, when God has finished all of his work in Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. You say, now wait a minute. If Assyria and the king of Assyria is God's rod, if God is the one who has sent him and commanded him, then why will God punish his own rod? The one whom he commands, the one whom he sends. And it's because it is in his heart to destroy The king has an arrogant heart and a boastful look in his eyes. And this is what he says. For by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of the peoples and plunder their treasures. And like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. And so which is it? Who destroyed Israel? God or Assyria? And the answer is it was both. It was God, the first cause, accomplishing the purpose of his eternal decree in history by the free and contingent actions of secondary causes, in this case, Assyria's desire for conquest. Did the king of Assyria freely come against Israel? Did he freely reject the one true God, assuming himself godlike status? He did. Is he therefore responsible before the all holy God and subject to punishment? He is. And yet, did God work in and around and above the desires of the heart of the king of Assyria to accomplish his eternal decree in his? nation Israel, he did. In other words, according to Isaiah 10, when the nations act, God also acts. But this raises another question. That if God determines all things then, in what sense are we free? Does this mean that we're just puppets on a string? Or or maybe even worse, does it make God the father of evil? We'll turn to your right to Isaiah 37. And it's here that, I, that Assyria, the same Assyria, is compared to a horse. A horse that God rides there in verse 29. We're going to see God mounts the horse. He rides down against Israel in destructive judgment. 
And when the mission is complete, God puts his hook in the horse's mouth there in verse 29, puts the bit in his mouth and sends it back to where it came from. And Isaiah's picture here in chapter 37, I encourage you to read it on your own. It's beyond the scope of time today. But if you read through it, then what you find in Isaiah's picture is that the energy belongs to the horse, but the direction belongs to God. The great Puritan theologian Charnock said this, all those changes in the face of the world, the revolutions of empires, the desolating and ravaging wars, which are often immediately the birth of the vice, ambition, and fury of princes, are as the royal acts of God as the governor of the world. The king in the ancient world, it seems from a human perspective, can do whatever he wanted because he is sovereign. But God's word says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. How much more true is this and comforting is it to us, this doctrine of divine concurrence, when we consider it in the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ? Turn your right to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 23. Acts chapter 2. Verse 23, as you're turning there, I'll just start in 22 for context. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed By the hands of lawless men. And so which is it? Was Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God? Or was Jesus delivered by the Jews to the Romans who drove the nails that killed the Son of God? The answer is yes. That's the doctrine of divine concurrence. And there is a high mystery this. That's why the confession says at the very end, the doctrine of this high mystery is to be handled with special prudence and care. And so we want to go as far as the Bible lets us go, and we don't want to go any further. We don't want to turn this into philosophical speculation as if we are able in some way to circumscribe the very infinite decree of God with our own reason. No, when we reach the end of the road that the scriptures lead us on, we fall to our knees and we worship a God who is worthy of our praise because he is bigger than us. Not just a bigger, better version of us, but is in an altogether different category. Just a couple of chapters later, Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, the apostle Peter in another sermon drives this home, this point home even more clearly. This is what he says in verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, get this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod, Pilate, the Jewish religious leaders, and even the frenzied mob in Jerusalem all freely committed evil in the unjust murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet God intended it for the salvation of his elect. 
To put it in the words of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's the doctrine of divine concurrence. And I could just keep on going. There's example after example after example in the scriptures. But just those handful of examples gives you an idea of the scriptural basis of what the confession is saying here. That God is holy and cannot be the author of evil. He is sovereign and yet in his sovereignty, he doesn't take away our freedom, but he establishes it and he works within it, around it and above it according to his eternal decree for our good and ultimately for his glory. Well, notice the very end. Most of our time is going to be spent here in the first paragraph because it sets the tone for the rest of the chapter. Notice what it says here at the very end, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things in power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. That last clause there at the end of paragraph one was added by the Baptists. And it's there to anticipate the chapter on God's providence in chapter five. In fact, what we're going to see in the coming weeks is that chapters three, four, and five all flow out of the doctrine of God such that chapters two through five should all be considered in some sense a unit. That according to who God is in himself, what then does he decree? That's chapter three. How does God accomplish his decree in his creation? That's chapter four. And how does he accomplish his decree in the guiding of all things to his appointed end? That's the doctrine of his providence in article five. So you can see we need to read the confession right to left. Chapter 2 being the fount from which chapter 3, 4, and 5 flow out of. And chapters 3, 4, and 5 getting greater clarity to the doctrine of, of God, this one whom we claim to worship and love and praise, who alone is worthy of these things. The Westminster Shorter Confession connects all of these. Question 7, it asks, what are then the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. The very next question, question eight, how does God then execute his decrees? Answer, God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Chapter three, chapter four, chapter five. That's our next few weeks. Well, let's start making our way through the rest of the chapter. We've seen the universality of God's decree, that it encompasses all things coming from God himself, but now we consider its unconditionality. That is, nothing conditions God's decree. Because he knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions. Namely, because God is omniscient, he knows every potential circumstance in the universe he created before he created it. No created knowledge can precede or inform God's decree. Remember, all the way back in chapter 2, this was the doctrine of God's aseity, his self-existence. That God is in no way dependent upon what he has created in order to be God. And because God has decreed all things in himself, his decree is in no way dependent on anything that he has created. No created knowledge precedes or informs God's decree. 
And so we can see then how divine omniscience and omnipotence and simplicity and immutability and much, much more are key supports and foundations to understanding God's decree. The 17th century particular Baptist Nehemiah Cox said this, God knoweth all things that himself can do, though an infinite number of these things are never done. God not only knows all things at once in himself, but he knows all possible things at once in himself. The logical implication then in paragraph two, and that's why it's polemical, is seen in its denial of Arminianism and in its denial of Molinism, or what some today call middle knowledge. It denies Arminianism when it says here that he has not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future. That would make his decree somehow contingent upon created knowledge. He sees the future free actions of his creatures and then bases his decree upon their actions. That makes God and his decree dependent then upon his creation. No, it cannot be Arminianism and it cannot be Molinism. That is at the very end that which would come to pass upon such conditions. It'd be a fun study to dive into those in a detail. Those of you who perhaps are more philosophically minded would love to get into those weeds, but we'll have to wait for another day. But the logical implications flow against Arminianism and flow against Molinism here in paragraph two. But now in paragraphs three through six, we're going to consider then the doctrine of God's decree as it relates to predestination. If we're thinking about God's decree broadly in the first two paragraphs, now we're thinking about God's decree more narrowly, specifically in his saving purposes. And we're going to see four things. We're going to see that predestination in chapter th- in paragraph three is for God's glory. We're going to see that it is in chapter four, according to God's nature, that in chapter five, that it is in God's son, And in chapter 6, it is through God's means. Consider this. Notice at the beginning of paragraph 3, it says here, the predestination is for the manifestation of his glory. That is by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated. The doctrine of election, the theology of election, is ultimately a theology of glory, of God's glory of him manifesting his glory in salvation for those who are undeserving and yet toward whom he acts to the praise of his glorious grace. And we see two things here. We see, first of all, a definition, and then we're going to see, secondly, a qualification. As far as the definition is concerned, Paragraph three is defining predestination. Here we see some men and angels are predestinated. Now the word predestined or predestinated is translated, the Greek word translated that way, occurs six times in the New Testament. You can't look at all of them today. I encourage you to do a quick little search on Google or elsewhere in your Bible software, and you're going to find that it is translated no less than six times And in every single one of those times, it is always applied positively to either God's plan or God's people. It is never once applied negatively to any person or group other than God's elect. 
And since the Bible never uses the term this way, neither does then the confession. The confession, rather than speaking about the predestination of the reprobate, which is what the Westminster Confession does, removes that from the Westminster Confession and instead adds a comment regarding preterition. See that there on your outline. That is, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation. And a few things are going to be important to keep in mind here. First of all, the doctrine of man's responsibility before God for their free actions and of God's glorious grace in saving whomever it is that are undeserving of his salvation. When it's talking about others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation, as I said, the Baptists omit Westminster's statement on reprobation, and they did it so that they could allow for a diverse set of views on preterition versus reprobation. Here's what we mean. The Paedo-Baptist confessions use the word foreordained when speaking of the destiny of sinners as well as the elect, while the Baptist confession omits that word and presents the doctrine in terms of preterition, that is, the act whereby God passes by sinners, leaving them in their sins and facing just condemnation. We see that there at the end of the paragraph, just condemnation. Sinners are left, it says. And that's because God passes over them and being left, they are then brought to just condemnation. Because of their sins, God withholds his restraining influences and he allows them, think Romans 1, to plunge deeper and deeper into their own sins. Just as we see, for instance, as God hardened Pharaoh's heart, even while Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so this clause points forward to chapters 31 and 32, both of which define the nature of eschatology, that is the last things, that God's decree, which we see here in chapter 3, will stand ultimately in final judgment with the eternal life or the eternal death of humans. Beloved, God's justice requires satisfaction. His justice is ultimately satisfied in the death of Christ for his elect or it's justified or satisfied in sinners in their eternal condemnation. But in the end, whether in eternal life or death, God's justice will be satisfied and God will be glorified. And those who are justly condemned are justly condemned because they have rejected God and his gospel according to their own freedom. That freedom established by God and is not taken away according to God's decree in any way. They freely choose according to their utmost desires, the desires of their heart, as we see with the king of Assyria, to rebel against God's gospel. This is why all of us who have been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have done so because God has given us new hearts made new according to the power of his Holy Spirit, whereby now we're able to act freely, not according to our greatest desires, corrupted in Adam, bent always against God towards sin, but according to new hearts and new desires, made new according to his Spirit, to to respond first and foremost to the truth of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then in faithful obedience to his perceptive will and his word. All of those 
whom God passes over act freely in rebellion against him. And they receive for their rebellion just condemnation. And this is the doctrine of preterition that God passes over them. And so this is an instance where the Baptists are actually trying to tighten the screws on the theology of their Westminster predecessors. Whereas our Westminsterian friends would say, well, listen, if the Bible says that God has predestinated his elect, then logically it must follow then that God has also predestinated the reprobate. And what the Baptists are saying is, no, 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 we need great care when we handle this doctrine. And we can only go as far as the Bible lets us go. And if the Bible says that God has predestinated the elect, but it has never been applied negatively to those who are reprobate, then we cannot make the same claim, but rather we must speak of those who, are, who receive just condemnation in the way that the Bible speaks of them. That is, that they have, re- they have freely rejected God and the gospel and are deserving of judgment. And so they're tightening the language to be as closely biblical as they're able to be. But then notice in paragraph four, we see that it is according to God's nature. That the number of angels and men thus predestinated are particularly and unchangeably designed. Where else have we seen that word unchangeably all the way back in paragraph one. From all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. The number of God's elect can no more change than God's decree can change. And God's decree can change no more than God himself can change. God is immutable. So nowhere along the line does God end up possessing more knowledge than he has once upon a time possessed such that another has become part of his elect that he did not predetermine according to his decree. God's knowledge does not change as God does not change. Not only that, none of the elect will be missing, nor will any of the non-elect be present. In the context of paragraph 3, regarding the foreordaining of the elect men and angels, their number cannot grow and cannot diminish. But here's what we need to note. Remember what we talked about at the beginning of our time, but the difference between God's preceptive will and his decretive will. The actual number of God's elect belongs to God's decretive will. He alone knows the number. We don't. He's chosen not to give it to us. God is good not only in what he reveals, but he is good in what he conceals. And he does this in part because we have a responsibility. In appointing not only the ends, God has also appointed the means. That is through the preaching of the gospel, all those whom he has predestined for eternal life will respond effectually to the call of the gospel and will be saved by his grace and repentance and faith in Christ. We'll consider that here in just a moment. So it is according to God's nature. Just as God cannot change, so his decree cannot change. He has decreed a certain number. And so that number can neither grow nor diminish. It is immutable as God is immutable. And yet God alone knows that number and he has chosen to conceal it from us. And that is for our good. Then in paragraph five, we see not only is it according to God's nature, but it is in God's son. It says here, God before the foundation of the world was laid, hath chosen, that is his elect, in Christ 
unto everlasting glory. The language here is the language of the covenant of redemption. And that's how the, organize, the confession is organized, by the pactum salutis, the astorial salutis, and the ordo salutis. That is, <clears throat> that is redemptive history, or the, the, rather the uh, God's covenant of redemption, God's history of redemption, and God's order of redemption. But here we see at the beginning of paragraph five, the eternal language in the first part here, even though it has subtle distinctions, all those different clauses that you see there that seem to be saying the same thing, they all have subtle distinctions in them, but they're united in one point. That everything concerning God's decree and predestination is ultimately the truth of God. That elect sinners receive the gift of salvation by grace alone. That eternally the triune God has determined to save sinners. And all of this serves to further clarify the definition of predestination. That it is the eternal determination of God to grant everlasting life to specific sinners through Jesus Christ. And if this is the case, then the destiny of any individual cannot ultimately determine by any creaturely action. That's why the confession says it is out of his free grace and love without any other thing in the creation or in the creature. Paul says this of God's purpose of election in Romans 9, that when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger. Listen to some of this language. Not yet born, done nothing good or bad, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And so God's electing purposes in Christ come from his free grace and love, such that if any creaturely action influenced his decree in any way, it would cease to be free grace. It would be contingent in some way upon creaturely actions. The doctrine of election is the foundation for the doctrine of God's grace in redeeming sinners, such that to reject or to modify or to undermine the doctrine of God's election is to reject or to modify the doctrine of God's free grace in saving sinners in Christ. That from before the foundation of the world, before you and I were ever born, before you and I had ever done anything good or anything bad, he has chosen us in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1. Why? So that his purpose of election might continue for the glory of him who calls. So we see that it is uncaused by creaturely action. But then notice in paragraph six, we're almost to the end. It says here that he has foreordained all the means thereunto. So it's not only through Christ or in Christ, but it is through God's appointed means. That is to say that God has not only appointed the ends according to his decree, but he has also appointed the means to the end according to his decree. And notice as you scan through it that this paragraph contains the exact order of major doctrines of salvation. That all of God's saving work finds its genesis in God's eternal decree. 
God has not only determined that the elect will receive eternal life, but how they will receive it and in what manner. He has, in other words, appointed the very means to bring us, to bring our salvation into reality. And so God leaves nothing to chance. That he provides everything in Christ by his spirit, all things necessary for our salvation. And here's what we see here, three things. We see God's covenant of redemption. We see the history of redemption. And we see God's order of redemption. Notice before the foundation of the world that we were predestinated by the eternal and most free purpose of his will in Christ. That is the covenant of redemption. And us being fallen in Adam are redeemed in Christ. From the first Adam to the last Adam, the doctrine of God's decree contains all of redemptive history from one Adam to the next. And for all of those who are saved in Christ, not one benefit or blessing of salvation will be left out, that the very order of salvation will be applied by his spirit. We will be called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept unto salvation. That's Romans chapter 8. This is what James Renahan says he says in chapter 6, the eternal covenant of salvation, or in a paragraph 6 rather, the eternal covenant of salvation, pactum salutis, the history of redemption revealed in scripture, historial salutis, and the application of redemption to believers, the ordo salutis, are all brought together. God's eternal purpose is saving the elect pilgrims, pactum salutis, who are fallen in Adam and redeemed in Christ, Historia salutis, and receive salvation by his spirit working in due season, ordo salutis, that God's decree contains from before the foundation of the world all things necessary pertaining to our salvation in Christ. Isn't that good news? Well, as you can imagine from the sensitive material that we've touched on, paragraph seven talks about the benefit of the decree and it starts off at the very beginning saying this has to be handled with great care. It says the doctrine of this high mystery. It's not just a mystery. It's a high mystery. As high as God is high. This high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. It does not come by way of general revelation. It's not something by virtue of being created in God's image that you and I are able to reason ourselves to. It is not something that is the fruit of philosophical speculation, though is philosophy itself the fruit of God's natural law. That is of what he has created. No, it doesn't come by way of general revelation. It comes by way of divine disclosure. And as a result, it's not something that we speculate upon according to our own reason. It's something that we receive by faith as divine revelation. And to do anything other than that, the confession says, is really dangerous. How many of us wandering off into trying to figure out God's decretive will whether it's for natural disasters or the problem of evil or whatever it may be, have wandered beyond the limits of scripture into a dark forest and gotten ourselves lost and in that darkness have found our own assurance and faith shaken and undermined. And yet when we handle this doctrine with care as this confession aims to do, it leads to no less than two things. It assures God's elect and it promotes godliness. It says here, first of all, 
that when it's handled with special prudence and care, men attending to the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. In other words, it gives us great comfort to know that if we have been saved by God in Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit, if we have been brought by faith to repent and believe in the gospel, that we've done so according to God's plan, and God's plan can in no way be thwarted, not in the least sense, by our own sin and doubt. That it leads to greater assurance as it's revealed in God's word. It, it leads us to a humble reception of revelation so as to obey the gospel. Not trying to figure out God on our own, but coming back to his word again and again and again. Not disregarding his decretive will, but knowing God is good. Not only in all that he's concealed from us, but in his word especially, all that he has revealed and being content with that of God's wisdom and his revelation and aiming to obey it by faith. And when we do, our assurance grows according to God's grace. But not only that, this high mystery when handled with care affords matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God. It leads to worship. It leads us to say with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, remember what he says? Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so this high mystery leads us to praise. That's what it led the apostle Paul to do. But it also humbles us. It leads us to recognize our own weakness and frailty, our own limitations and sin. It leads us to greater diligence that we would work according to the strength and the freedom that he's given us and the way that he empowers us by his grace to obey him by faith. And it leads us into abundant consolation just as it does to all who sincerely obey the gospel. That is the doctrine of God's divine decree.